This is Crossroads, the Get Religion podcast. So the idea that we're going to make a judgment that is going to say that no one can make the judgment to choose to abort a child based on a decision by the Supreme Court, I think goes way overboard. That's President Joe Biden speaking Tuesday at Joint Base Andrews in Maryland. He's responding to the leak of a draft opinion from Justice Samuel Alito in Dobbs v. Jackson, a case that has the potential of overturning Roe v. Wade. Obviously, the president doesn't want that to happen, even though he says frequently that he objects to abortion on religious grounds. How are the media covering this truly historic story? Greetings and welcome to Crossroads with Terry Mattingly. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for tuning us in. Terry is Senior Fellow at the Overby Center for Southern Journalism and Politics at the University of Mississippi. He's author of the weekly On Religion column for the Universal Syndicate and the book Pop Goes Religion, and he's founder and editor of Get Religion. Terry, welcome back. Glad to be here. Let's turn first to the president. What does the president's history with abortion tell us about what could happen if Roe does fall? Well... There's been a lot of writing about that over the years, but not that much that I have found so far in wake of Monday night's events, except for a Washington Post story with the headline, Abortion Has Long Been Complicated for Biden. Now he leads the fight. And it's significant, as always, that this is framed you know, as a political story. And... But what's different about this story is it does wade in pretty deeply into Biden's long history with abortion and how he started off kind of like, it reminds me a lot of the uh, Senator Al Gore of Tennessee. He started out with a position that was just short of being explicitly pro-life in all circumstances. And he has now evolved into a position where functionally and more importantly, from the viewpoint of the Post, politically, he is now, I, you know, I question at this point whether he would recast his vote against third trimester abortion. You know, if you put him back in the Senate, how would he vote on a bill that said doctors have an obligation to preserve an aborted child who is born alive, the born alive bills? I don't know. What we do find out in this Washington Post story and it's it's quite interesting, and I applaud them for some quick depth on some of this, even if there you know even if I think there are some holes in it. We do get a pretty decent look at Biden's history with the issue of abortion and how that relates to his Catholic faith. But before we go deeper into the weeds on that, I'd like to ask a question and want our listeners to think about this, and you can answer. We can just sit here and muse on it for a second. If the story had broken Monday night that Justice Roberts had convinced the conservatives on the court to leave Roe in place, but to affirm the Mississippi law that allowed abortion to be banned after 15 weeks, which, by the way, would create a head-on collision with the concept of viability in Roe. But let's set that aside for a second. 
if Roberts had managed to do that, what do you think the political response to that decision would have been? And would it have been significantly different from the one we're seeing now? I know it would be significantly different. I think it would be a sigh of relief from much of the media that Roe has survived to fight another day, but maybe they would probably say it's further evidence. I'm I'm just guessing further evidence of Roe's yeah. tenuous position in this overly conservative court. Yeah, I think that most of the press would have responded with almost as much furor as they do now. Now, I understand that the fall of Roe is a terribly significant thing in terms of American history. And I understand all the kind of political weight that goes with that. But stop and think about this for a second, which, of course, is exactly what a lot of journalists really are not doing all that much of at this moment. If Roe falls, the American map, that familiar map that we've seen with the blue states and the red states, Jesus Land versus the United Republic of Canada or whatever other names people have put on it. Think about that map for a second. The states in blue are probably going to pass unbridled defenses of the right to abortion in all cases. It's possible that in a few states you might have them debate whether there would be some limits on third trimester abortion. And we'll come back to that in a second. Meanwhile, in the red states, some of them already have and some will pass bills that absolutely bar abortion or bar abortion in the overwhelming majority of cases or a lot of them in the midst of the fallout, depending on what happens, a lot of them are probably going to put something in law very similar to a heartbeat bill or something like that. Now, the reason I bring that up is that, as people have been predicting for years, I think the national politics of abortion would remain very much the same. But the state politics of abortion would change incredibly. And one of the things that's going to happen in states such as Texas and probably Florida and Georgia and Louisiana and a whole bunch of other places is the role of two groups of people are going to become very important. One of those groups of people will be pro-life Democrats. And I'm defining pro-life Democrats here as people who would actually vote for the fall of Roe or for legislation that would be very as close to the fall of Roe as possible. The second group of people, and that brings us back to Biden, the second group of people are like the people that Joe Biden used to be. There's going to be some people most of them Democrats, some Republicans, who are going to become very important as these states begin to negotiate compromises. And that's where I think you're going to see some Democrats actually defending something like a heartbeat bill and pairing it 
with efforts to extend state services more to unwed mothers, single parents, low-income groups affected by this. And we're still going to have the groups on the far extremes. But what really is intriguing to me is at the state level, I'd say in about a third of the states of the United States, we're going to have some real, actual attempts by some Republicans and some Democrats to find some sort of compromise that resembles the Mississippi law. And there'll be other people, of course, who just say, well, that's out of hand. And there'll be people saying that from the left and from the right. Now, let me be clear with listeners. I am a pro-lifer and accept the teachings of my church, the Eastern Orthodox Church, that life begins at conception and continues through natural death. What I'm saying here is that as a journalist, I'm trying to point out where the action is going to be if this draft turns out to be right. Because in the battle for the House and the Senate, and the leading theory right now is that this draft was leaked from the left either to put pressure on some member of the five justices who are voting to overturn, put some pressure on them and try to get them to flip, or it's an attempt to give the Democrats six months of a political arena in which there is an issue drawing more ink and more press coverage than the state of the economy, some of the fights over parental rights in public schools, etc. Meanwhile, parentheses, and then I, I'll, I'll leave this long rambling answer alone for just a second. I also think one of the key things we're going to see, this links the current controversy with the Disney controversy that we're hearing so much about, and we talked about the other day. I think there is a distinct possibility that states that pass either a ban on abortion, an almost ban on abortion, or a heartbeat bill, I think it's going to be very interesting in the wake of Disney to see if big technology and other major industries in America set out to punish those states economically in terms of jobs, travel, funding, etc. And by the way, all of this is part of the scenario from David French's book, Divided We Fall, in which he kind of tries to figure out what would happen after Roe. And I would recommend to a lot of people, even those who are not fans of David French, I would recommend that they read that book because an awful lot of what we're going to see in the next six months is kind of anticipated in that book. I hope that covered some ground, but at the heart of all this is Biden, Biden's history, and to some degree how a lot of Democrats may be walking back up the abortion ladder, so to speak, more attempting to get some sort of centrist position that would resemble, ironically, what Joe Biden used to believe. Talk about the journalistic ethics of Politico publishing this apparently before its authenticity is yeah. verified. Well, I mean, it's really interesting that, 
you know, I mean, the obvious thing to do is compare this with the the Biden laptop story in which you had this is leaked material. We cannot verify this. We really shouldn't cover this. In fact, we're going to ban it from social media. We're going to ban it from coverage. We're going to ban it from Twitter, the big symbolic public square. And compare that with the explosion that occurred on Monday night before it was verified. Then you get down into the ethics of the fact that the press is in cooperation with everyone is assuming a clerk or some other person involved in the mechanics of the court who managed to set aside either a paper copy of this draft or, riskier, chose to save a digital copy of the draft, a PDF or something like that. Now, I say, why is that riskier? We now know that Chief Justice Roberts has demanded that the police of the court chase this to the bitter end to try to find out, because the implications for American politics, if the Supreme Court stops being able to have its debates and write its drafts in private, is just astonishing. I mean, if you think the court has been politicized up to this point, nothing, there'll be no holes barred at that point in the future. I was talking to my son earlier, who's a bit of a computer junkie in the midst of his work with being an engineer. We were trying to think, how would you email a copy of this to the Politico, to a reporter, to a middle person? Somehow, how would you do that? And I've been thinking about it, and a term that's been in the news quite a bit with Donald Trump lately in the last three or four months, I assume at this point we're talking about the document being shipped via a burner phone where the person sent themselves a story to a smartphone that is purchased with cash. It's in another person's name or in a phony name. You use that phone to ship the file to its destination, and then you throw the phone in the Potomac or something like that, or you, and the term implies, you burn it somehow. It's going to be very interesting to see whether the press is all that interested in solving this mystery. Or, as I predicted on Twitter, I think it was early this morning, my prediction is if this was a clerk from the left who leaked this, I think the odds are extremely good that Biden pardons this person if they're convicted of crimes. And that they are immediately hired by probably some very prominent private law school for their their courage for the saving of America. It's a huge aspect of the story. I'm going to be interested in seeing by the time we get to the weekend editions, do we see very much interest from the press in trying to follow that part of the investigation? Is the media bias more prevalent on the coverage of abortion than any other issue that we talk about regularly? I used to think that it was, but I I honestly don't think it is anymore. For example, this Washington Post story, it has things in it that I would have stated differently. 
and there are things left out of it that I wish could have gone in it. But at the same time, I don't know what length, what number of words this political reporter was assigned. I think all in all, it's not that bad a story. And as I said earlier, people could learn a lot by reading it. And I think you're going to see quite a bit of effort in the next couple of weeks, except for the most partisan of media, like CNN, MSNBC, etc. It's going to be a real test for the Washington Post and the New York Times. I would also keep a very strong eye on NPR in the next couple of weeks. I think we're going to see some efforts to put other points of view into play, especially if the vote comes out and Roe falls. At that point, they're going to need sources on the other side of the issue, or they're going to get beat. They're going to get beat on very important stories going into the fall campaign and into the state level of this battle. I have argued now for at least a decade, maybe even two, I forget when I first posited this, I think coverage of LGBTQ issues, especially as they relate to the First Amendment and to religious liberty, I think that issue is much more poorly covered at this moment in time than abortion. And that's saying something. So you mentioned CNN. I think you wanted to contrast perhaps the Washington Post coverage of this so far with that of CNN. Why? Yeah, well, what you see in these two stories is one that is looking through a political lens. It's coming from the political desk. But they recognize that Joe Biden is now the lead defender of abortion in America. And this is a man that, as they state at the top of this story, when he entered the Senate in 1973, 17 days before Roe, he, as a young senator, stressed, well, here's the quote, I don't like the Supreme Court decision on abortion. I think it went too far. I don't think that a woman has the sole right to say what should happen to her body. And of course, he was opposed to the uh, federal funding of abortion. And there were a lot of other positions that he took. And you compare that quote from 74, which the Post, to its credit, does right at the top of the story with the quote on, and, and listen for the trigger language in this, language that some other news groups seem to be cutting out of some of the video. Listen to this quote. The idea that we're going to make a judgment that is going to say that no one can make the judgment to choose to abort a child based on a decision by the Supreme Court, I think goes way overboard. What did you hear in that sentence that made your ears prick up? Abort a child. Yeah. I classify that as his worst gaffe of his presidency without rival. It can't be but rivaled. It, but it's only a gaffe if people point it out. It's only a gaffe if people cover it. And note the difficulty involved in that, him breaking, you know, like the number one rule in the Planned Parenthood book of press relations. I mean, that's like talking about Margaret Sanger going to a Klan rally or something. These are things you just don't do. But in this story, the Post does a pretty decent job of tracing back into his history and the history of Catholics involved in American politics. And they quote some interesting people. They quote some people who are critics of Biden, where he is now, or at least people who are willing to say the problems he's going to face politically with what he's done here, in part because, see, Biden 
has put himself into an extremely rare group. When people talk about the fact that American Catholics overwhelmingly support abortion rights and that American Catholics overwhelmingly support Roe v. Wade, now we get into the question of whether they understand what Roe v. Wade actually says and the impact it has and whether they might actually favor some limits on abortion, similar to those you would find even in the most liberal nations of Europe. But we can't do them because of Roe and the accompanying decisions packaged with Roe to create our current regime of abortion laws. But when you look at this in polling, really active Catholics dare say in violation of the Associated Press and the language used by CNN, Joe Biden, that devout Catholic, the Washington Post accurately calls him a practicing Catholic. But Biden, with his intense public fervor for Catholicism and his active going to Mass over and over, wherever he goes, has placed himself in the midst of a group of Catholics who tend to be more pro-life, if not outwardly pro-life. And that is people who intensely practice their Catholic faith. Of course, what we have no right to ask him is what is his relationship to the sacrament of confession and how he deals with his political actions there. Because while the, the post gets into Biden, as he has at other parts of his life, saying that St. Thomas Aquinas, he said that insolment begins with quickening when a woman can feel a baby move. And it is true that Aquinas talked about that quickening is where you can definitively say, this is a child. We know absolutely this is a child, you know, based on the science of his age. What Biden doesn't say is that in other writings, primarily when writing about the Immaculate Conception of Mary in Catholic doctrine, he says, philosophers cannot tell us if quickening is when a child is ensouled and becomes a human person. And because philosophy cannot tell us that, we will support the Catholic teaching that ensoulment is at conception and that life must be defended at all stages. Biden seems to forget the second half of that question. But where the Post really needed to add a paragraph, Biden is in a direct collision with the teachings of all of the recent popes, including his hero, Pope Francis, on abortion. And most importantly, he's in a direct collision with the Roman Catholic Catechism and the formal doctrines of the faith. So when people talk about, well, this is Biden's approach to Catholicism, a lot of the majority of American Catholics share it with him, it still doesn't get around the issue that this man continues to go to communion over and over and over while cooperating with the defense of abortion. Let me uh, read the, the crucial language here from the Catholic Catechism. Formal cooperation in abortion constitutes a grave offense. Now, in Catholic law, there's nothing above a grave offense. The Church attaches the canonical penalty of excommunication to this crime against human life. And it talks about this is a person who procures a completed abortion and makes it possible. Now, what it gets tougher is what is the status of a Catholic 
who cooperates in the availability and the procurement of abortion, perhaps even taking political action that helps fund the abortion or defends the abortion being available under all circumstances. You know, what is the moral status of a Catholic who votes for, makes possible their existence, tax dollars to fund third trimester abortion, let's say. Well, you needed to have at least one or two paragraphs in this story that stated what the Catholic Church holds up as doctrine, and that is doctrine defended by Pope Francis and everyone else in the recent history of the Church. So I've talked with, over the last year or so, half a dozen legal experts from various sectors of the American legal landscape, and almost to a person, I would say to a person, they anticipate that the decision of this court will be to, in effect, in some form, overturn Roe v. Wade and Casey. That's the consensus of the people I've talked to who know the court and who know Roe very well. I'm fascinated by the surprise that many in the political realm and many in the media are expressing over the content of Alito's decision here and what it may indicate for the future decision. They seem to not have been paying any attention to this. Well, I mean, the key is you put a door in your statement there, which was to overturn Roe or, in effect, overturn it. Now, there's a huge difference between those two options. Functionally, making it possible for states to do heartbeat laws would really, or something resembling the Texas law, if and when that ever hit the court, the in effect there is a big difference from leaving the logic of Roe standing. And you will hear that right now in some of the panicked discussions, even though Alito stressed, my logic in this case applies only to court writings on abortion or whatever. You're now hearing people saying now they're going to overturn contraception, they're going to overturn same-sex marriage, they're going to overturn interracial marriage, which is going to be a huge surprise to Justice Thomas, the man who assigned Alito to write this decision if the Chief Justice was not ever a part of that coalition to overturn. All of that hinges on the privacy language of Roe not just going down, but on a decision that does not do what this one does, which is apply that logic to some of the court's other decisions based on on privacy standing. Now, I am not a lawyer, and let alone a someone who could wade through the 89 pages of the decision quick enough to know, but it's my understanding that Alito has attempted to say the standing and taking of a human life based on privacy is a different issue in American law than some other questions that have been rooted in just basic concepts of privacy. And I would perhaps contraception would be the best example there or interracial marriage. Now, playing the card that they intend to overturn gay marriage, the other thing though is that gay marriage, whether we like it or not, has largely been accepted by the American public, whereas abortion continues to be this fiercely divisive subject at all levels of American politics. So 
was the press genuinely surprised? I would say intellectually, the people covering the story had to know this was a distinct possibility. Although I think some of them would have assumed that kind of the country club Republicans of the ilk of Kavanaugh, who attends a very progressive Catholic parish in Washington, and some others, I think they would have been surprised that there was a vote to completely overturn. Now, the minute you talk about Roe must be struck down, at that point, I can honestly say that you're not talking about logic. You're not talking about the head at that point. I think for the overwhelming majority of elite journalists in newsrooms between Washington, D.C. and Boston, I think at that moment this turns into an emotional story. And we're seeing that in a lot of the reactions. We're seeing that maybe it's a way of doing whip up the voters for the fall, but we're seeing that in a lot of the uh, people on Capitol Hill. But let me stress one other thing here. I would be analyzing right now, if I was a political desk reporter, all of the Republicans and Democrats who have at any point voted to take a compromise position on abortion. And I'll st the easiest way to define that is a, a position on abortion and federal control of abortion, funding of abortion, et cetera. That would be opposed by Planned Parenthood or by the people who wrote the Democratic platform. Anyone who stuck out the nail of their political convictions higher than even a half an inch to dare people to pound it back in. Among Republicans, of course, we have lots of pro-abortion right Republicans as well, and a lot of them have taken semi-compromised position. But the action in the next five to six months, because of the, the narrow holding of the Senate and the overwhelming odds of Republicans taking the House, if the economy is the number one issue, I think you'd have to say at this point, someone needs to be getting a list of the Democrats who are in danger. A lot of people have been saying that the five justices who voted to overturn, that their security details right now should be like doubled or tripled. And that's a distinct possibility. But I would say thinking ahead, it wouldn't hurt right now to give the Democratic senator of West Virginia, Joe Manchin, a little bit more security in the next weeks as well when some of this hits votes on Capitol Hill. Some quick final questions. Do you think the media has adequately begun to cover the content of Alito's opinion? Like I said, it's 89 pages long. I don't know what the format will be. It wouldn't hurt. I mean, using the Internet, if, if I was the Washington Post or the New York Times and I wanted to do something interesting with this, I would create an online copy of the opinion. And then I would approach someone like Paul George of Princeton, you know, eminent scholar of ethics and law. And then I would take someone on the left and ask them to annotate the decision. And they could do that very easily online. You could make it to where when you put your cursor over that material, a note would pop up in a cloud from one or the other or both 
of the scholars you chose to um, employ for this purpose. I think something like that by weekend would be a distinct possibility. I, I do expect that you, yes, that you will see some deeper coverage of what Alito actually wrote. In the meantime, I think the next story is already hinted at in a quote in the CNN piece. Interestingly enough, it's a quote that says exactly what the Washington Post has in an anonymous quote from a White House official who asked not to be named. Well, we have an actual quote from the press secretary, Jim Paskey, told reporters on Tuesday, the president's position is that we need to codify Roe, and that is what he has called on Congress to act on. Okay, there's something big in the Senate again. But listen to where she goes immediately. Paskey continued, what is also true is that there has been a vote on the Women's Health Protection Act, which would do exactly that, and there were not even enough votes, even if there was no filibuster to get that done. Do you see now why I was saying that it might be helpful to give some extra security to the senator of West Virginia at this point? The issue is whether the Democrats want to die on the hill of killing the filibuster. That has been the case because that's what allows them to then go into the fall elections waving the flag of court reform, Supreme Court reform. Someone online, I forget who it was, said that the person who leaked this draft had to know that they were striking at the very foundations of the Supreme Court and how it works. The ultimate question going into the fall elections and beyond, the political question, is how, how do we know that wasn't exactly what this person wanted to do? Terry Mattingly, your senior fellow at the Overby Center for Southern Journalism and Politics at the University of Mississippi. He's author of the weekly On Religion column for the Universal Syndicate and the book Pop Goes Religion, and he's founder and editor of Get Religion. Terry, thanks for your time. Glad to be here. I'm Todd Wilkin. I'll talk with you next week. Thanks for listening to Crossroads with Terry Mattingly. Crossroads is a production of Get Religion, part of the First Amendment projects at the Overby Center at the University of Mississippi. If you appreciate this podcast, please make a secure online tax-deductible donation at getreligion.org.